Thanks for joining us for our series on the gospel and its ramifications for church life. These messages work through the heart of the gospel within the overall story of God and then deal with several outcomes of this good news in Jesus. How he creates a new people for God by his spirit, defines and upholds their identity through baptism and communion, and sends them as ministers of reconciliation to the world as foretastes of God's coming kingdom. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Let's read our text for today and we'll get going. We're going to be in Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say, say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we rejoice together today. All hail the power of Jesus' name. We declare that you are holy and just, righteous, and we admit that we are sinful and rebellious. And yet, here we stand redeemed and forgiven, our names being written in heaven. Lord, this is impossible without the glorious atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and so we say thank you. Lord, together we come asking for your help today. I pray that um, you would help us hear the words of Scripture with ready hearts. May you make us worthy of your calling. Would you fulfill every resolve that your people have for good? Would you teach us and shape us as we desire to work in your fields for your sake? Would you fulfill every work of faith by your power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in us, and that we would one day be glorified in him. We pray for your grace, and we pray for our hearts to be dependent on that grace today as you supply us exactly what we need for today. And tomorrow we'll pray for daily bread again. We rejoice in you, God. In your holy name we pray, amen. Uh, what kind of power does the local church have? What kind of uh, authority, what sort of authority has the local church been given? Does Christ's gathered, affirmed body have any sort of say in another believer's life, or for that matter, an unbeliever's life? Uh, we live in a society that thrives on individual autonomy. I mean, we have a declaration of independence, <laughs> that which makes sure that we are not subject to lords and overlords and all things like that. We love to be independent and free, and according to this thinking, it's a great virtue, of course, to chart one's own course and to live according to our own conscience and ability and to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Um, my daughter, Evelyn, who just turned four, is a walking example of this attitude constantly. Um, she is, she's, this girl is like all American. You know, she is independence. Um, she is going to do it by herself, doggone it, and she is going to do it 
her way. It's going to be done that way. My favorite example lately is swimming. Um, she gets in the pool with me and proceeds to tell me, no, daddy, you don't hold me. I can swim. Now, now she just turned four. She's been three before this, and she has no idea how to swim. So I know she can't swim. I know this. Uh, but I do want her to figure out that I know that, and she doesn't. And so I give her two seconds to try to swim. And I, not abusively, of course, I pull her right back up, <gasps> gasping for air. She's fine, don't worry. But she realized maybe that she can't do what she says, although she wants to be so totally independent. She is fiercely independent and does not want anyone else telling her what to do or how to do it. She's not alone, though. We understand this attitude. Uh, whether it's ourselves or our children or our friends, or again, it just comes back to our own hearts. We live in a society that proclaims, <laughs> we're not going to take it anymore. Like, we're not going to do it underneath the man. We're not going to do that. Or, uh, again, a famous line here, I did it my way. L like, it's littered throughout even our own songs and the way that we live our lives and our shows and all things that we even use as entertainment and propaganda, that we are going to do it our way. It's independence. In this culture, we can easily, though, slip into thinking that the ultimate authority is me and my thoughts and my best attempts at living properly before God. And that if I just do that and I make sure if I live properly by myself and these standards before God, that's what's supposed to happen. And so I ask the question again, right here, I mean, this church, what in the world, what kind of authority has been given to the local church? Last week, we spent our time looking at our Lord's words in Matthew 18. Uh, you know, we understand this a little more as, yes, confronting sin, or we would even say church discipline, the process of church discipline. If we love one another like Christ loves his disciples, we will understand that Christ's body, the church, is sacred, holy, and pure. We will be ready and willing to confront one another when we see sin in one another's lives. And on the flip side of that, we'll be willing to hear when someone else says, hey, brother or sister, I think I see sin in your life. And we recognize this whole process, even through that little, that little parable before about the sheep that was lost, that our good shepherd cares deeply and it's his heart and will to rescue wandering sheep. This is the good news, the, the good news of the gospel in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. But this, uh, this passage here, it assumes something, right? It, it actually assumes authority. Because as we look here, it assumes that it's not up to the sole individual's interpretation and feeling as to their status within the body of Christ. It's not just up to you. Jesus gives the command to regularly watch out for one another, being willing to confront sin and encourage repentance and faith for each believer. We saw all this from Matthew 18, 15 through 17. But we didn't finish the passage last week. Do you remember this? We read all the way down, 18, 19, 20, but we never did that. We read it, but we didn't cover it. Our text, of course, today is in chapter 16, but I'd like for us to flip the page over and let's look at chapter 18 first today for a moment and understand the rest of these words. Just to give you a quick recap, verses 15 through 17 goes like this. You'll remember a brother is sinning. Someone understands that and goes to that brother or sister and says, hey, we see this in your life. You ought to repent. If they repent, wonderful. You've won a brother. You've gained them. But if they will not repent, then you're to bring another one along or two along. And again, privately come to that person and say, hey, brother or sister, we see this sin in your life. And you call yourself a brother and sister and you, you can't continue to live this way. Repent and trust Christ. And if they, if they repent, praise the Lord, you have won a brother. But if they do not, 
than you are to tell that sin to the church. So for the sake of their soul and for restoration and for love and in gentleness, you would pursue that person so that they would not make shipwreck of their faith. We understand this is the process here that we saw in verses 15 through 17. Again, the whole goal is restoration. But if they will not repent, this person is to be treated as a tax collector or a Gentile. In other words, an unbeliever. And it's here that Jesus says these next words. Ready? That's the context. Verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, over the years, this text has been used inappropriately, has been taken out of context for various reasons, but I think it's important for us to make sure we hear Matthew use it the way that it, the Lord said it. We re, that's how we get it. We hear it as Matthew records it from our Lord. He is not starting a new topic. He's not com- coming over here, and this isn't somehow new teaching separate from what he's just been talking about. He is giving us the grounds for the process of church discipline. He is showing us here that making a judgment against a brother or sister is a serious thing. But it can only be done because Christ has given authority to the church. When we read, um, when you and I read Matthew 18, uh, we immediately bristle. Like, no one wants to do this. This is not comfortable. It's personal. It feels like an attack. It's literally judgment. It's saying this is not right in your life and you ought to change. No one likes to do this. We rightly ask out of that then, my goodness, what what authority does the church have to remove someone from membership? I mean, we don't really know someone's heart. How can it be that we should do something like this? Who are we to call someone out for unrepentant sin? I mean, how can we do that to the point that we're making a judgment call that they are either in or out of the body of Christ? I mean, you do realize that's what we're saying, right? What we're saying here, this person is unwilling to obey Christ, they are unwilling to repent, and they are proving themselves to profane the body and blood of Christ. This is no small thing. And Jesus says that if this is true, that you must treat them as an unbeliever. And Paul later goes a little further to say, you must remove them from the church. And again, here as I think about that, I sit and say... What authority do we have to make such a judgment, such a decision? In verse 18, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He's showing that if his church follows his commands and lovingly pursues a brother for restoration, and if that brother will not repent, then they are, to, they are doing church discipline what is actually real. They are setting them outside of the church. If the church identifies sin properly according to his way, it truly is sin. It truly is exactly what he said it is. The church, consider for a minute, the church isn't making new decisions that are now somehow binding on God. We're not talking about that. This isn't like now we've handed over to them and God sits back and says, I hope you make a good decision, but whatever you say, I'll do. That's certainly not what's going on here. Jesus isn't saying that God hands over the power to really know what is sin and what isn't sin. He's already done that. It's according to his character. It's not as though now we get to make the decisions about what is right and wrong. 
It's based on his character, and by no means is God somehow handing over his role as judge to the church, and then he'll rubber stamp it. It's not what's happening. Rather, he is saying that when the church walks in obedience, as the church of Jesus Christ, when it calls sin, sin, it calls it rightly, and it's correct. This idea of binding and loosing is going to become important for us because what we are seeing here is actually, in, verse, in chapter 18, is an interesting reusing of the phrase because it's actually started out here in, verse, in, in chapter 16. Here in Matthew 18, the phrase is being repurposed properly, but repurposed to explain how the church is to use its authority rightly to identify sin within the body of Christ and call that person to repentance and faith. But the truth is, we want to be very careful about doing this, right? Like we all recognize the weight of something like this. We want to understand this thing rightly so that we don't improperly put some out of the church that shouldn't be. And we understand that when we enact church discipline, we don't just want to just be an in, a human institution that possibly makes a bad call, right? I think so. Look at verse 19 and 20, though. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. The beauty of this process is that it's based on our corporate identity in Christ, not on our human wisdom. What it's understanding here is we know that the process is based on the proper corporate identity in Christ, which is really just a gift from God, that he's the one that took us from darkness to light. There is no specific size of group or people that has to equate what it means. There's not like a, a holy quorum requirement because then once you get that many together, that's how many it takes to declare sin or not sin. That it doesn't have to be reached for a local congregation to be a legitimate congregation or anything like that. When a group of Christians have gathered, have assembled, have united together under the headship of Jesus Christ, he is, get this, in their midst. He is among them. He says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. When the church is gathered in Jesus' name, and by that we're not just talking about two or three that walk down the road and say, hey, you want to meet in Jesus' name? That's not what's going on here. When I say this, when the church is gathered in Jesus' name, meaning they are truly an obedient, worshiping representation of Christ's body, and they carry out his commands of lovingly calling the sinner to repent and be restored to Christ and his church, and even if it goes to the point that they must remove this person from their membership, then this church acts in obedience according to the will of God. Why? Because the amazing thing is that Christ is among them. It's not because we were so smart. It's not because we got all the rules right and we knew what to do. It's because Christ is among us. I mean, this is incredible, but to be honest, if we know Matthew, it really shouldn't surprise us. Back at the beginning of December, John Sweeney preached a message from Isaiah. I don't remember this, but he referenced where he calls him out and says, the, the Messiah is coming, the, the Emmanuel is coming. And we saw that back in Isaiah, but then he called us forward to Matthew 1.23. And we learned that the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy wasn't just in Isaiah's day, but it was Jesus himself, the person. Verse 23 says this, listen, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Then Matthew adds these little phrases. He says, which means God with us. Matthew's point is that um, he's not just here on a visit. 
like he is to now dwell among his people. By the end of the gospel, again, we learn this again. He's not just come to visit, but he has come to stay, to be in their midst. In Matthew 28, okay, so we talk about 123. Now let's go to the other end of the book of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 19 through 20. You know it as the Great Commission. Listen, this is what it says. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Listen, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He started off going this way, and now he's going to the end and saying, Jesus Christ is in your midst. You, are, you have him with you. It's incredible. The church does not have its own authority. It is a derivative authority that is handed to it to steward well, based on the person of Jesus Christ, not based on our right doctrine or the right things that we can think about in all of our wisdom. And although this is enough, there's even more to the story. God has not given his people authority only in the area of judging sin and excommunicating those that are profaning the name of Christ inside the walls of the church. The authority actually even goes a little further than that. It goes to the point of holding the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now that's a pretty awesome sounding responsibility. Like we have the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I like the ring of that, right? Peter and the disciples were given these keys of the kingdom and as we see here in Matthew 18 and we'll see in Matthew 28, these keys are also given to the rest of the disciples and then to the brothers, which means to the church. But the church, uh, when, when they are gathered in Jesus' name. But what in the world does that mean? What are these keys of the kingdom? I mean, right, you look at me like, Chris, you have them locked in the janitor's closet or like the keys like in the office or like they must be down or lock and pad. And key. Like, this has got to be a good thing. Obviously, I'm joking. We don't have literal keys. Um, Jesus didn't hand a key over to Peter when this happened. And then once Peter was getting ready to die, he passed it to somebody else and somebody else, and eventually we found it in the Vatican. That's not what's going on here. He is not talking about literal keys. He is talking about the bigger picture here and something that's not so literal. So what is he saying then? What are these keys that he has given to him? In Matthew 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's teaching, but it's more than that. He's not just downloading information. Jesus is going to ask them now, to respond to him. Like a good teacher, he asks questions. And now to the point they need to respond to him. He is helping them to go further than mental ascent of his teaching. In verses 13 through 15, Jesus first asks, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they respond with a couple different popular opinions about who the Son of Man is. But then Jesus asks a more important question. He says, but who do you say that I am? Interestingly enough, he's telling that he is actually the Son of Man. But I can imagine that as the, they, he asks them this question, you can see the 12 be like, everyone gets quiet. They start looking down because they don't want to make eye contact. They're like, I don't know the answer. Do you know that? I don't know the answer. It's quiet. And then step forth, Peter, I mean, totally Peter style, and answers in faith. And he says this. He says, um, you are the Christ. In other words, he's saying you are the anointed one, the Messiah, the son of the living God. He declares that this man that's in front of them, Jesus of Nazareth, this one is in fact the Messiah that the prophets had told them to look for. This is the one. He really is the son of the living God. And don't miss this because Jesus' response to Peter is so crucial. We need to hear it because it then will help us to understand there's a very important stipulation that clarifies how Peter answered. 
He says this, Peter. He doesn't say, great job, high five, nice work, you got it right. He doesn't say that. He says, Peter, you are blessed. Wow, why? Because no person, no human being, in other words, blood, flesh and blood, no person revealed this to you. But it was my Father in heaven. This means that Peter believed the gospel, had come in Jesus Christ, and Jesus is making it clear that Peter did not receive this from human intuition or revelation from another human being, and they were, he was persuaded this way. He did not receive it by uh, natural means. It was God's work to reveal this good news to Peter. In other words, it must have been by faith and revealed only by God, a work that not Peter could do. Only God could do this. Look at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus uses Peter's understanding that Jesus truly is the Messiah. He uses that understanding to teach about the power and importance of this message for the rest of the church of Christ. Now, you may already know this already, but Jesus is using a clever little pun here. Peter's name also sounds a lot like Petra, the rock. So he's calling Peter the Petra, the rock, on which he will build his church. Now, there are several debates about how this goes down, but I am not saying, and no one is saying, that this is taking Peter as the first pope. That's not what the text is saying at all. It doesn't help us see that at all. There's no text that support that Peter is infallible or that by succession he's going to pass on his authority to something else or that he has exclusive power. That's not what this text is teaching. But it certainly is that he calls him the rock and will be a foundational piece in his kingdom. And we know from 1 Corinthians 3.11 that Jesus is the church's foundation and that Paul is an expert builder. In Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, we see that the apostles and the prophets are also called the foundation of the church and that Jesus is the cornerstone. None of these titles or descriptions threatens Jesus' lordship or his kingship. That's not the point of any of these. So let's not get hung up on that. What's happening here, these metaphors should always be interpreted within their own context to follow what's going on, what that author is trying to do, what he's trying to tell us, what his purpose is. Jesus will use Peter, the first one to properly identify and believe and declare the good news of Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus will use this Peter as a foundational preacher of the truth of the gospel as he Jesus builds his church. Now consider the next phrase, verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in earth, on heaven. I'm sorry. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now what is Jesus saying here? Is there a little, like a literal gate that is, is opened up and they have to go in through that way? What are these keys that he is giving to Peter, and what do they do? Why is this important to him? And at this point, he's making this and giving him the keys to the kingdom. We can see that these keys um, bind and loose. We understand that. But the idea is not a new one in the scriptures. If you go back to Isaiah 22, you don't have to turn there if you want to, you can. But in Isaiah 22, we find Isaiah describing the coming of God's servant. In this case, the near fulfillment is a man named Eliakim, who will have the authority committed into his hands. That's important wording. He will have the authority committed into his hand. In verse 22 of chapter 22, the statement is made that God will place the key of the house of David on his shoulder. And then he says this, he shall open and none shall shut. 
and he shall shut and none shall open. The keys here are a symbol of authority. What they're doing here, it's, it's as if the one author says this, he says, the authority of the steward or the servant to make binding decisions in the interest of the king. Again, it's a derivative authority. It is the derivative authority to carry out the boundaries of God's kingdom. Now, later on in Scripture, Revelation uh, 3.7, we understand that the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy is not just Eliakim, but actually he's speaking to Jesus. And he says this about Jesus, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. In other words, exclusively, all of the power, all of the authority belongs to Jesus. None of us deserve to hold the key whatsoever, and we can't really even enact it. We, don't, we have no power to do that. That's not ours specifically. Here it is Jesus's. We didn't come up with the key. We didn't decide what the key would look like. It was his, and it always has been his. Jesus has the keys. He has been given all authority and stewardship of the kingdom of heaven. You know uh, this from the Great Commission, right? You, you know these words from Matthew 28. He says, all what has been given to me? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He says that he's been given all authority to bring in the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. He does this in Matthew 28 by giving the disciples and all the brothers, that's us, to go and make disciples of all nations. The task and authority to welcome in the citizens of heaven has been given to Jesus who is with them always and with us always. He has been given all authority. And in this context, he is speaking of the entrance into the reign and rule of Jesus as Savior and King. He is saying that this is the authority to bring a person salvation. It certainly is eternal, but it's also the difference between living for yourself in your own kingdom and living under the rulership and reign of King Jesus. He has the, kings to, the keys to open the door and close the door to this kingdom. And now... He gives those keys the authority to Peter and the church. Wow. We must ask then, what does this mean for us? What in the world should we do if this has been given over to us? How can Peter, and as we know from Matthew 18 and 28, the church be given authority to bind and loose? I mean, do we just get to choose who's in and who's out? Like, has it become now like, wow, we, that's a lot of authority that we should put on the church. It's a, it's a council of bishops coming together, and we'll figure it out who's in and who's out. Is this some type of high church authority that is strong and arbitrarily used based on what our ideas about it should look like, upon human wisdom and our best understanding and good judgment? No, of course not. We recognize we've seen even through history the abuse of very, uh, this kind of understanding. This is why our context, though, is so important. There's a reason I started in verse 13. If you look there, and remember this little passage, what did Peter just confess? Something that no one else has said yet. He has confessed the gospel. He has said that Jesus, the good news that the Messiah has come, and it's in Jesus Christ. It was revealed to him that Jesus was the anointed one that all the prophets spoke about. He's slowly beginning to understand what Jesus has been doing all along in his ministry. It's, it's lost on us, but even in Matthew 4.23, guess what Jesus is teaching and proclaiming? The gospel of the kingdom. 
He is bringing and showing who he is and what he is bringing in. He's been proclaiming the coming of the Messiah and the nearness of God's rule and reign over his people. And guess what? Peter gets it. He knows this is, this is him. Well, this is Jesus, or Jesus is the Messiah, the one we've looked for for so long. He begins to see through divine revelation, through the Father opening his eyes to know this, that it is coming through Jesus, the promised Messiah. If Jesus is the promised Messiah, he alone can bring in the kingdom. He alone holds the keys. And now finally, Peter knows who to point to. As they've been waiting and and they've trusted the promise and they know that one's coming, but now he knows. He's like, look, this is it. He knows and believes that the Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, for the first time, the gospel has a real, known, revealed Messiah that they can see and they know exactly who the historical referent is. It's Jesus of Nazareth. The Messiah is Jesus and he's here. And, And Peter knows all people must know this truth. Jesus must be proclaimed. And Peter does something about the newfound truth, not only just the way he speaks, but in his actions. He just doesn't sit on this truth. Once Jesus has completed his work, once he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, who is the most famous preacher, especially in Acts, about this Jesus of Nazareth? It's Peter. Peter's the one in the book of Acts in chapter one, I'm sorry, chapter two, and then again in chapter three, where you have him proclaiming that he knows who the Messiah is, that he has come, and that it's Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, the one that you killed. They know who it is now, and he is preaching, this is the one, look to him. The gospel is now understood because it's Jesus who did this. Some of us then, starting to get this, Peter's revelation that Jesus is the Christ is the message that opens doors and closes doors. Some of us are starting to understand, but let me just be clear and succinct. The gospel message is the key that opens and closes the doors of the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again. The gospel message, the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he has come and acted in his atoning work, the gospel message is the key that opens and closes the door of the kingdom of heaven. It is the power of God to show who are being saved, to those who are being saved, right? The power of God to those who are being saved. But we know the other side of that equation. It's folly to those that are perishing. Paul makes this very clear in 1 Corinthians. To the believer, the gospel is the golden key of joy and eternal salvation under the, ring of, under the rule of King Jesus. While to the unbeliever, the gospel is foolishness. It's ridiculous. And the truth is they're glad to pass up on this so-called door into heaven. It's ridiculous to them. The door is closed to them because when they hear that gospel message, they say, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want to underst- put myself under Jesus Christ as king. As Peter preaches the gospel of Jesus as the Messiah, he opens the door for some and he closes the door for others. This is then the authority of the church, not some arbitrary judgment on who's in and who's out, using the wisdom of man and power, but according to life that is in line with the gospel. We have been given the stewardship of what? The gospel. To understand that he has come. And he is what all of the Testament, all of the Old Testament had told was coming. That it's, it's satisfied in Jesus. And so every bit of authority given to the church, every place in the New Testament that shows the church to have power, to act, comes from the power of the gospel. 
not, not the strength of the church or the wisdom somehow in our gathered thoughts on how this is supposed to go. It is according to the gospel. In other words, if we don't look and act like Jesus, we haven't gotten the gospel right. And we are not living in accordance with what it says. Do you see how important it is actually to live in accordance with what Jesus says? The gospel is not a free get-out-of-hell ticket. It is in and of itself showing us what it means to live under the kingship of Jesus Christ. And that gloriously is, part of that is our salvation. But it also means that now we have a new master and Lord and king. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he has revealed himself. And he has given us his word. If we do not live these lives of repentance and faith, we are not living and declaring the gospel. Worse than that, we must ask ourselves, if a person who's not willing to repent but calls himself a brother, if they're actually in the faith at all. That is a sobering reality. But to ask ourselves, why will we not repent to our Lord Jesus who has died for us, who's given himself for us? The keys of the kingdom have been given to the church to proclaim the gospel that is true. It's the real story of the world, that Jesus is the Messiah, and it is only through him that a person can receive salvation and endless joy underneath the kingship of Jesus. And this gospel makes us into people that live according to his rule. We notice if you, if, if you read any of Paul's books, you know he tells you this is who you are. Now go be who you are. It's his work in us. We know that's to be true. And then he gives the task of pursuing him. We must live that in accord with who he is. And as intimidating as it might be for us, we recognize that Jesus calls us to be stewards of the gospel. Not to be cowards, but rather to stand up for what the truth is of Jesus and what it makes us. It happens by two ways. By proclaiming the gospel faithfully, all the different parts of the world, but also as we Christians live in accordance with that message and all that it means to live under Christ. We are to live in light of the truth that we have been made new and that we are to live under the kingship of a benevolent, all-powerful king, King Jesus. And this is why church discipline is no arbitrary judgment. It matters. It's extremely important. It's no arbitrary judgment. It's the guarding of the gospel. We may not think of it in those terms, but church discipline at its core is guarding what it means to understand the gospel properly and who it makes us. It is guarding the gospel by judging sin that is not in accordance with Christ. Church discipline shows the believers and the world that a Christian's life is marked by repentance and faith. A life that's lived joyously under the reign of Jesus Christ. We've already talked about this. That doesn't mean that we're perfect or sinless. We want to be. Our desire would be to live in accordance with who he is. And yet we recognize that we still struggle with the sin that, go, that so easily besets us. But what's marking our life is not the fact that we're perfect or sinless. It's that when this happens, we crawl to Jesus Christ begging for mercy, knowing confidently that he has paid it all. And not that somehow we're kicked out at this time, but rather that we are sons and daughters based on the payment Jesus Christ made at the cross. That he took the wrath of God for you and me. And so we live as those who are marked by repentance and faith. 
Church discipline shows the believers and the world that a Christian's life is marked by these things and that we're joyously living under the reign of Jesus. Now, what should this do for us? I got two thoughts here for us, two simple thoughts, and you probably can put them together yourself. First, we must consider evangelism. We must consider the gospel, that it is not to be hidden underneath the basket, as it were, but is to be proclaimed, that we are actually made, by receiving the gospel, we are made to be salt and light, to be a witness to the world around us. We must consider evangelism. We have been given the most incredible key that opens the door to those in our backyards, in our families, across the world, across the whole globe, that they have access now to Jesus Christ if they will only believe. The gospel message that offers the sinner forgiveness in Christ and a life of eternal joy under the rule of King Jesus. We must not squander this gift. And if we do, we're selfish. It's wrong. We must take it seriously. As I'm talking about evangelism to your friends and neighbors and, your, and all that you come in contact with, and I'm talking about across the seas when we consider and pray for the Riyal Malayu people. We consider those that are dying and going to hell. We need to consider that and say, what then do we do about this? How do we take care to love and actually love our neighbor and give them the gospel? We have been given the most powerful message in all the world, so let us give it out liberally and prayerfully and joyfully and lovingly because we love our Lord Jesus Christ and because we love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the first thing. Secondly, we cannot get around the fact that this is an important piece of why we believe so strongly in church membership. Now stay with me. It is the church's responsibility to hold the gospel dear and to affirm those who truly know and live according to its truths. It matters. For us somehow to hold an open hand as to who's inside the church, who's outside the church, truly is an unwillingness for us to judge and maintain a faithful witness to the gospel. Because remember, in the gospel, it shows who we are. And if we're not willing to do what it says to do, we have a little bit of a problem. And this shows us an important, important aspect of what he's called us to. When we talk about membership and calling believers to join Cornerstone, this is not about joining our club. It's about us actually understanding our membership in the larger body of Christ to make it real, to commit to one another in real time that has real consequences. This is what we talk about when we talk about church discipline, we talk about membership, we talk about baptism. All these things are making these things real in front of each other. Jesus is saying to us that believing the good news of Jesus Christ gives us a new identity and a responsibility to live according to that identity. In short, he's saying that the gospel, get this, has ramifications for the life of the church. You thought it was just a witty title that Jordan came up with. It's not. It's what Jesus demands of us. The gospel makes us a people. All the things that we've been talking about past the first session of the gospel, they're not add-ons to our religion. <laughs> they're, in fact, what the gospel makes us into, a corporate people in Jesus' name. And we talk about that. That's exactly what we're talking about here. It's not some witty title that he made up. It's actually what Jesus demands of us. He is showing us the way we live our lives as the church is a testimony to how we treat the gospel. It's incredibly important. Therefore, as we consider this, let us be good stewards of this great gift that we have been given. 
both by proclaiming it to the world, but also by living in accordance with the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, we ask that we would humbly bow before you. We're so easily swayed by different things that pull at our heartstrings, whether it's self-aggrandizement or listening to others or fear of what people think of us. Oh God, would you break those things down so that we would worship at your throne and live a life that says Christ is king. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done in the gospel, giving us new life forgiving us of our sin. You took the wrath of God that we so deserved. We worship you and ask for your continued work in our hearts. We need your grace and ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would continue to massage the word into us that we be changed in the image of Christ. We love you. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.